You have the right to remain silent. A staple of cop shows around the world, the wording is from a decision by the United States Supreme Court in 1966. Ernesto Miranda, a labourer from Phoenix, had confessed to the kidnapping and rape of 18-year-old Lois Ann Jameson, but the police didn't mention his right to an attorney during his interrogation. The Supreme Court overturned his conviction on the basis that suspects have the right not to incriminate themselves. After the ruling, police departments issued cards with the words officers had to recite when making an arrest. Miranda himself was retried and jailed. Released on parole in 1972, he began signing and selling the Miranda warning cards. Ernesto Miranda eventually wound up dead in a bar brawl, but the Supreme Court ruling in his favour remains contentious. It was one of a series of decisions expanding individual rights and liberties under Chief Justice Earl Warren that amounted to a constitutional revolution and established the nine Supreme Court justices as major players in American politics. With 171 days to go, this is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prideau, The Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how will the Supreme Court affect the election? An argument over the president's tax returns arrived in the Supreme Court this week. Donald Trump is challenging five subpoenas that require him to reveal his tax records. He's defied decades of tradition for presidential candidates by refusing to release them. The power the court holds over the presidency is once again under scrutiny in an election year. Meanwhile, the pandemic has exiled the country's finest legal minds from the neoclassical splendor of their court building. They, like the rest of us, are experiencing the frustrations of remote working as the hearings are streamed online. In this episode, we'll find out how that's all been going, ask how the court got so political, and what role it might play in this year's presidential election. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this is Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. John, last week, your nine-year-old son was threatening to go hunting with a bow and arrow and catch a turkey for the family. How is self-sufficiency during lockdown going your end? Well, there's no turkey on the table yet, but there is. I'm recording in my bedroom and outside the window, there is now a hand-painted target hanging on a tree and a couple of homemade turkey snares. So uh, I'm frightened. (laughs) Uh, Charlotte, how are you doing? Has there been any hunting in the garden where you are? No hunting where I am, though that would add considerable excitement to what feels like day 1000 of the same repeated schedule. Well, at least we had the distraction this week of listening into the Supreme Court arguments um, all at the same time, messaging each other on, on WhatsApp while doing so. John, you've been to the Supreme Court a bunch of times to listen to arguments. How different was it listening into arguments that were being had via conference call compared with being in the room where it happens? The questioning was quite different. So instead of the very loose, open-ended anyone can ask whenever they want. Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts called on the justices in order of seniority. Um, And so everybody got to ask a question in order. That was somewhat different. And I have to say, I really liked that innovation. I thought the the biggest revelation was just how sharp Justice Thomas's questions were. He's famously reticent from the bench. He was not during these arguments, and his questions were very perceptive and unshowy. 
Yes, just as Thomas is famous, A, for not asking questions, and B, for feeling that the other Supreme Court justices tend to interrupt the lawyers too often and not let them finish. And it is true when you go and hear arguments in the court that the poor lawyers often can't get to the end of their sentence before a justice jumps in and they're sent off in another direction on their arguments. Um, So the whole process seems a little more orderly than it normally is when you go to the cases live. Though, of course, there is a limit to how orderly anything remotely recorded can be. Um, As we heard, there were issues with mute buttons, with justices weren't pressing the unmute button fast enough. And in in one instance, a justice clearly did not press the mute button, and there was a loud flush in the midst of one lawyer's argument last week. So like everyone else in the country, the Supreme Court is struggling to adapt to remote conference calls. So let's turn to the specifics of those hearings about President Trump's finances and his tax returns. There are two sets of cases here. One that has to do with Congress seeking to subpoena tax records from Trump companies, and the other from the Manhattan District Attorney. Steve Maisie is the most astute observer of the Supreme Court I know. He covers the court for The Economist, and I asked him to explain what's at stake. There are two sets of cases. It's confusing because there were actually two cases that were consolidated into one oral argument. That case is known as Trump versus Mazars. Mazars is Mr. Trump's longtime accounting firm. And those involve House committees that are seeking documents to do things like look into foreign interference in the 2016 election, to look into Trump's financial ties, and to consider crafting laws that strengthen ethics rules. So All of those were bundled into the first argument. And the other argument concerned a case called Trump versus Vance. Cyrus Vance is the Manhattan prosecutor who is assembling a grand jury to look into the alleged payments that Mr. Trump made through his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, to an adult film star and to a Playboy model to keep them quiet before the 2016 election. And before the cases were heard, my assumption going in had been that the case that had to do with congressional subpoenas was more likely to be you know, not good for President Trump because the House has pretty broad subpoena powers and because presidents in the past, going back all the way to Gerald Ford, have always produced their tax returns. So it seemed like there was plenty of precedent there. The other case I thought might be more of a stretch, but you and your piece for The Economist this week argue that after hearing what the justices had to say and the way they questioned the lawyers, actually, it seems to be the other way around. Many of the justices were concerned that the House may be using its subpoena power in a rather capricious and opportunistic way here, not to necessarily pursue any particular legislative projects, but more to put a dragnet out for President Trump's records. There is kind of a a mismatch between what they're asking for and what they're intending to do with those documents. So we heard those complaints from Chief Justice Roberts, from many of the other right-leaning justices, and even from Justice Breyer, who worried that if they let all these subpoenas go forward, well, what's to stop future Congresses from harassing and undermining presidents? And Steve, is this the most important set of cases that have come before the Roberts Court on the powers of the presidency? Well, there have been a lot of cases involving the powers of presidents. Some of the biggest cases from the past few years have involved whether Trump had the authority to ban travel from predominantly Muslim countries. That was one that was resolved in his favor. 
There was another one last year about the census and whether a citizenship question could be added to it. He was very much arguing that it's the prerogative of the White House and the cabinet to make changes to the census when they deem necessary. This is one of the few examples when the Roberts Court has pushed back against presidential power and said that Trump overstepped his boundaries. What's unique about these cases involving taxes is that it's a question of the overlapping sections of the Venn diagram between the Congress and the president. And so in terms of the separation of powers, I do think that these cases are the most important ones that we've heard during the Trump era. And there are plenty of references made both by the lawyers and in the justices in the, the questions to the lawyers to you know, really big cases like the Jones case to Whitewater, to Watergate. Whatever the justices rule, these sets of cases will join that fundamental precedent on where the balance of power lies between Congress and the presidency. Yes, the two most salient precedents in these cases are when the Supreme Court told President Nixon he needed to hand over those tapes. And that ultimately resulted in his being forced from office. And Clinton versus Jones, this was a civil suit that Paula Jones brought against President Clinton, claiming that he sexually harassed her some years earlier. In that case, as in the Nixon case, the Supreme Court unanimously told Mr. Clinton that he needed to take part in these civil proceedings while he was president. That's the case which is more directly relevant to Trump v. Vance, and that's the one where the argument for Trump's lawyers did not go as well, and it seems to me that Trump has a much better chance of losing that case, which means that financial records could be flowing over to that Manhattan grand jury within weeks or months, but grand juries operate in secret, and that evidence will be under seal at least until Donald Trump leaves office. So on the basis of this week's hearings, it seems pretty unlikely in your judgment that voters will know anything more about Donald Trump's tax records when they're voting in November than they do now. I think that's probably true. John Fasman, let's start with you. There were lots of different arguments made in these various cases. Which were the ones that really jumped out at you? The one that jumped out at me just for sheer implausibility, was, came from Jay Sekulow, who is one of President Trump's lawyers, and who argued that Donald Trump doesn't have time to respond to lawsuits during a pandemic. And this struck me as implausible for two reasons. Number one, Donald Trump has time to rage tweet often, which implies that he has a lot of time where he's not actually doing presidential work. He's not about the people's business. But more importantly, he doesn't really have to prepare anything for these subpoenas. They're for records held by third parties. The thing that's taking up his time is fighting them. Complying with them would take zero time or effort. That's a really good point. And I also think just going back to some of the history of the arguments made in this case is telling. Last year, the Vance case was before the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. And there was a hypothetical that was asked to the president's lawyer, which was whether if the president followed through on his claim that some may remember that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and wouldn't lose any voters. That's something that Trump said during the campaign. Um, if the president followed through on that, would he be the subject of criminal indictment or investigation? Or does his absolute immunity extend to even that situation? And his lawyer argued that authorities would have to wait until Trump had left office to charge him for that crime. So there is something interesting that happens when they're hearing these cases, which is that justices don't want to have a ruling that leads to a facially absurd outcome. 
So there is a matter of applying the law. And then they also are very reluctant to hand down a decision that results in absolute absurdity. So I think it's worth keeping that in mind as we think about how the justices might rule this summer. All right. Thank you both. In a moment, we'll look at how the presidency has squared up against the Supreme Court in the past and find out how balking entered the political lexicon. But first, a reminder to everyone who's listening, if you're not an Economist subscriber already, obviously that's a grave disappointment to us, but I'd also argue that you're letting yourself down. This week's issue, as usual, is packed with insight. We look at how COVID is accelerating deglobalization, look at Irish pubs in America, and plenty more besides. All The Economist's coverage of the pandemic is in one place at economist.com slash coronavirus. To receive 12 issues for $12 or £12, head to economist.com slash pod2020. Those links, as always, are in the show notes for this episode. On the most contentious cases, anything covering abortion, voting laws or religious liberty, Supreme Court decisions these days are pretty predictable. They almost always split five to four. Four conservative justices vote one way, four liberals vote the other, and one in the middle plays the deciding role. The Chief Justice, John Roberts, insists that the nine justices are not politicians in robes, but that is how it can look. Where did the idea that the justices divide between liberals and conservatives come from? Ladies and gentlemen, please. I have a statement to make, and then following that statement, or any questions you might have, I shall refer you to the Attorney General. The nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor in 1981 was a turning point for the Supreme Court. Those who sit in the Supreme Court interpret the laws of our land and truly do leave their footprints on the sands of time. Ronald Reagan had promised to pick a woman as his first nominee. When a vacancy arose, he tapped Day O'Connor. Most of the speculation is centered on the question of whether I would consider a woman to fill this first vacancy. Even by Supreme Court standards, she was extraordinarily brilliant. She grew up on a cattle ranch in Arizona, riding the bus 30 miles to school each way. She went to Stanford aged 16 and excelled there. She is truly a person for all seasons, possessing those unique qualities of temperament, fairness, intellectual capacity, and devotion to the public good, which have characterized the 101 brethren who have preceded her. Day O'Connor was a political choice in some sense. She had run and been elected as a Republican state senator in Arizona, but she was seen as moderate and as such was acceptable to Democrats. I do not believe that as a nominee I can tell you how I might vote on a particular issue which may come before the court or endorse or criticize specific Supreme Court decisions presenting issues which may well come before the court again. But that same moderation infuriated the religious right. They had hoped that Reagan's presidency would mark the beginning of the end for Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court ruling that established abortion as a right. The right to life people may oppose her, sir, and we just wonder if... Uh... All of those questions the Attorney General is prepared to answer. So, Mr. President, you have a firm position on that. Can you give us yes. your feelings about her position? I am completely satisfied. On her right to life position? Yes. Reagan wrote in his diary on July 6, 1981, 
called Judge O'Connor and told her she was my nominee for Supreme Court. Already the flack is starting, and from my own supporters. Senators confirmed Day O'Connor unanimously, but the Right to Life people made their displeasure known. Reagan's next pick, Antonin Scalia, was a more dependable conservative than Day O'Connor, but Democrats still backed his confirmation unanimously. Then Reagan did something that really delighted conservative activists, something that both liberals and conservatives agree helped turn the court into two teams of warring ideologues. Reagan nominated Robert Bork to the court. It sparked fireworks on Capitol Hill. Before we uh, begin with Senator Kennedy's opening statement, um, we will have a vote in the middle of it. I'd appreciate it if we not... After uh, an introduction from Joe Biden, then chairman of the Judiciary Committee, Senator Teddy Kennedy denounced Bork at his confirmation hearing. Time and again, in his public record over more than a quarter of a century, Robert Bork has shown that he is hostile to the rule of law and the role of the courts in protecting individual liberty. He has harshly opposed and in public itching to overrule many of the great decisions of the Supreme Court that seek to fulfill the promise of justice for all Americans. Bork was a neuralgic choice for Democrats, partly because they felt Reagan's picks were altering the balance of the court in a much more conservative direction. In Robert Bork's America, there is no room at the end for blacks and no place in the Constitution for women. And in our America, there should be no seat on the Supreme Court for Robert Bork. But it was also because Bork had played a key role in Watergate. As Richard Nixon's attorney general, he fired the special prosecutor investigating the scandal. All Americans should realize that the confrontation over this nomination is the result of a deliberate decision by the Reagan administration. Rather than selecting a real judicial conservative to fill, fill Justice Powell's vacancy, the president has sought to appoint an activist of the right whose agenda would turn us back to the battles of a bitterly divided America. Reopening issues long thought to be settled and wounds long thought to be healed. I believe the American people strongly reject the administration's invitation to roll back the clock and relive the more troubled times of the past. And I urge the committee and the Senate to reject the nomination of Mr. Bork. The Democrats' view was presented in what became known as the Biden Report, a 300-page takedown of Bork's record. Republicans thought the treatment of Bork, an eminent legal scholar, was outrageous. The verb to Bork, meaning to vilify a presidential nominee, entered into Washington parlance. We have reached the end of the debate on this nomination. And I believe 58 of my colleagues, 57 of my colleagues, 58 counting me, are likely to vote no. The Senate voted him down by 58 to 42. Supreme Court nominations have never been quite the same since. America's partisan warfare sometimes resembles an Icelandic saga in which each side takes revenge for what's been done to them and nobody's quite sure who started it. The Bork nomination is a great example. Did Republicans start it by nominating someone whose role in Watergate made him unfit to sit on the Supreme Court? Or did Democrats start it with their balking? Each side believes it has right on its side and that the tactics employed by the other side justifies fighting dirtier next time. 
Why is the Supreme Court so predictable now? In one sense, it's because the people who pick and confirm the justices, the president and members of the Senate, want them to be. And that all goes back to Sandra Day O'Connor and Robert Bork. Another thing to bear in mind about Robert Bork, he was not only the subject of an acrimonious confirmation hearing, he was also the first real exponent of the judicial philosophy known today as originalism. Justice Scalia became a better-known exponent, but that's because he was on the court. But it started with Robert Bork. And originalism is the belief that the Constitution must be interpreted as written and understood at the time. And it came about as a corrective to what conservatives saw as an excess of judicial activism in the 60s and 70s. The Warren Court was busy extending civil rights protections, and they didn't like that. Hence, originalism. And Justice Scalia explained it thus. This is his quote. The Constitution that I interpret and apply is not living but dead, or as I prefer to call it, enduring. It means today not what current society, much less the court, thinks it ought to mean, but what it meant when it was adopted. The question with that, of course, is how originalists know what the Constitution meant when adopted. Well, sometimes they refer to the text itself, and sometimes to framers' debates around the text, and sometimes to popular understanding at the time. Some people argue it depends on which of these approaches supports their preferred conclusion. So Justice Scalia, for instance, voted to expand gun rights, even though his reasoning contravened decades of jurisprudence and implied that the framers would have felt the same way about groups of anti-government protesters carrying assault rifles into restaurants as they did about allowing citizen patrols to wield muskets against the British. But when it came to expanding gay rights, Justice Scalia, who just happened to be a conservative Catholic, suddenly rediscovered originalism and restraint. And it's easy to see what liberals dislike about this philosophy. They would argue that it puts the brakes on any expansion of civil rights by weighting the views of a few dozen white men from the 18th century, or I guess more precisely, what a few dozen white men today believe a few dozen white men from 250 years ago believed over modern values. In that sense, originalism is really no different from what conservatives pejoratively call the living constitution school of thought. It's just judges reaching conclusions using exegesis. And it's not hard to see why originalism appeals. Its proponents can say that they're just being faithful to the constitution while their opponents are inventing reasoning to support their conclusion. But really, they're doing the same thing. Originalists just use their own historical interpretations as a sort of fig leaf. I'm sympathetic to an element of originalism. I mean, I'm just thinking about when we were writing our editorials in The Economist about whether Donald Trump should be impeached. We, in a sense, became originalists, you know, went and looked back at the Federalist Papers, went and looked at the impeachment clause and so forth. So it's helpful, I think, as a guiding principle to say, okay, well, what did the founders make of this? And, you know, what do the amendments, the Constitution on this point mean? But if you take that as your only principle, I think you get completely lost. It, it reminds me a lot of the strain in evangelical Christianity, which not coincidentally was on the rise at, at the same time, that sort of says there's only one possible interpretation of the Bible. And my interpretation happens to be the right one. And and I think originalism in its kind of purest sense is as, as absurd as that. It's it's also, Charlotte, it's interesting as a rhetorical device, isn't it? Because originalism is often presented as a way of kind of limiting the court's role, right? The founders had a somewhat limited view of of how important the court would be in American life. And so originalists are just kind of taking it back to where, where it's meant to be. But in the course of doing that, Often, the interventions that the court makes are very political. And there's a long, long, long history in America of the Supreme Court uh, being political and 
imposing itself in tussles between different branches of government and sort of imposing its will over both the legislature and sometimes the presidency. The tension between the Supreme Court, the presidency and Congress is a natural one. I mean, there's a reason why there are three branches of government. Um, some tension exists. But you do see over the course of history this bubbling up in in quite dramatic ways, perhaps most dramatically in the 30s when FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, had passed a series of laws under the new, as part of his New Deal effort. And many of those were overturned by the Supreme Court. FDR won the 1936 election in a landslide, and then he tried to change the structure of the court. He wanted to have six additional justices for every old and infirm justice over 70, which itself was hugely unpopular. So some of this tension between the presidency, Congress, and the Supreme Court is natural, and you wouldn't change the structure of the court, of course, as FDR suggested and was wholly rejected by the American people in order to solve that. Nevertheless, you do have these decisions that become quite sweeping in contradicting what is essentially the will of the people. All right, thank you both. We'll assess how political the court has been under the current Chief Justice, John Roberts, in a moment. To get a feel for the politics of the current Supreme Court and how it might make its influence felt in the 2020 race, I spoke to Mary Ziegler. She's someone I talk to often about Supreme Court history. She's a law professor at Florida State University and the author of a new book called Abortion and the Law in America. She says the jury's still out on how politicized this court will turn out to be. We have had, relatively speaking, few decisions issued with the current composition of the court. So in other words, since Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch joined the court. But already um, there are signs that the justices are aligning more consistently from an ideological standpoint with the party that nominated them. Increasingly, you, you can predict where someone is likely to land on a lot of issues based on whether they're nominated by a Republican or Democrat. And that, that, of course, is by design because organizations like the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society have been working to get better and better at vetting judges so that they do live up to the expectations of the effectively partisan lawyers who've been grooming them for a position on the Supreme Court. Can you talk a bit about why those two organizations, the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society, have the influence they, they do? I mean, looking at it as an outsider, it's hard to understand why that would be the case. How does their influence operate in the legal world? Well, I, I think it's, it's kind of twofold. One is that uh, these organizations are networking organizations. So as young lawyers enter law school, they can often meet other influential senior lawyers find jobs, put their name in the hat for judgeships. So they, they provide kind of networks for professional advancement. But as part of those networks, there's a sort of assumption that you will take part in certain intellectual discussions and probably traffic in certain kinds of ideas about what the law should look like, what the Constitution should mean, and so on. So they, they kind of also have established what elite legal thinking on certain topics looks like. So then when you have, for example, someone who's being groomed for the lower courts and then maybe ultimately for the Supreme Court, there's going to be a kind of certain set of elite conservative or elite progressive ideas about the law that that person will probably share because of their professional background. 
If all these potential Supreme Court judges who might be appointed in five or ten years' time have already been groomed by either one side or the other, does that really close off the possibility of having really independent-minded judges who don't vote in predictable ways on, on cases in the way that we've tended to see in the past few years? Well, I think it, it, not entirely. So, I mean, there are definitely ways if you go to an elite law school in the United States, you don't really, strictly speaking, have to belong to one of these organizations to advance professionally. Um, and many don't. I think that's especially true, actually, of people who are left of center or centrist more generally. I think it's it's harder for people who are more conservative leaning simply because the Federalist Society was a reaction to the fact that conservatives had been largely marginalized in legal academia. But I I think there is room for people who are more independent minded. One of the challenges, of course, is that if you are that kind of person, you also have to get nominated. And increasingly, the business model for presidents has changed. So if you go back several decades, even say Ronald Reagan was picking justices some of the time to try to get a kind of smooth confirmation process and bipartisan approval. Increasingly, that's not true. And instead, what you see is presidents like Trump using Supreme Court nominations as a way to get people out to vote and to kind of rally the base, which means that even someone who is more independent minded is less likely to come to the attention of a president in the first place who's going to be looking for someone who's going to deliver the kinds of results that voters expect when they go to vote for a president. So Charlotte, Mary makes the point that justices behave in a somewhat predictable way on the Roberts Court because that's what they've been picked to do, essentially, by the politicians who who nominated and who confirmed them. Yes, I think that John Roberts, the Chief Justice, remains a really fascinating figure and will remain one for decades because he's so young. There was a moment when Trump called a federal judge in California an Obama judge after he had blocked some asylum rules, and the Chief Justice made an unusual statement in in an official statement that said we do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. He he really wants to present the idea that judges are independent minded. The president responded, I think, in a tweet very dismissively of that. You know, of course, there are Trump judges or Obama judges Um, and Democrats cling, I think, to the idea that Roberts might be more moderate when we look at his record over the long term. He, of course, helped to uphold Obamacare when many thought that he might rule against it. So he's this really interesting and I think somewhat enigmatic figure, but generally he does. I mean, he does vote uh, conservative. So I think there's a bit of democratic projection onto Roberts where there's always this hope that he might prove to be the crucial swing vote. He might prove to be the moderating force. I think that hope stems not necessarily from Roberts's political views or from any democratic delusion about his political views, but from the fact that he is such an institutionalist. He rules with such a sort of eye on the court's place in American life, and he's so wary about letting the court get dragged into politics that he's going to be very careful when it comes to making any sweeping decisions. I think to the extent he has any biases, he has a status quo bias. And at a time when the federal bench has tilted so far to the right, that ends up helping Democrats. But it's not because he is consonant with them politically. It's because he's very leery of making radical change. You saw that conflict on display this week in a case about uh, faithless electors. The framers intended the 
electors in the Electoral College to use their judgment to cast their ballots for the president and the vice president. But very quickly that changed. So by the end of the 18th century, political parties had emerged and electors cast their ballot for the candidate who had won their state's popular votes. And so here you had this really interesting conflict where if the court observes the original intention, what was clearly the original intention of the framers, they would unleash chaos. And you heard that reflected in Alito's comments where he said, we have to interpret the Constitution to mean what it means, regardless of the consequences. But we are told by experts on elections that the consequences would be potentially chaotic. And at a time when the Electoral College is already in question, you have had recent instances of Democrats winning the popular vote, but not the Electoral College. Justices are trying to navigate this very tricky situation where if they stuck to their guns on originalism, they would clearly be causing much unrest in a very divisive electoral year. Talking of chaos, there's of course a possibility that the election in November doesn't go as smoothly as planned. And if that's the case, then the Supreme Court would yet again be asked to step in and adjudicate on the most sensitive matter in American politics, uh, namely who gets to be president and, and how they get to be president. John, can you talk us through the sorts of cases that the court might be asked to rule on between now and November and, e- and even after November that have a direct bearing on um, the election and on presidential politics? Well, there are a few areas. One concerns gay rights. Uh, the court heard a case about uh, whether religious schools can hire and fire in accord with their principles, even when that may contradict with established laws protecting gay, lesbian, and transgender employees. Um, another broad area concerns the future of DACA recipients and DREAMers, their rights to stay in this country, and that sort of their future as, as Americans. And I suspect we'll probably see the court weigh in or be asked to weigh in on postal voting. It's just such a huge shift in how Americans vote with so many moving parts that it's hard for me to believe that someone doesn't file suit and it doesn't get appealed up to the Supreme Court and they have to weigh in one way or the other. I think you can also expect Trump to bring up the Supreme Court and the prospect for further nominations, particularly with the eye on Justice Ginsburg's position in the run up to the election. This is a reliable way to get people to the polls and in any year, and I think will be especially pertinent this year. I'm sure that's right. You'll remember Donald Trump in 2016 said, even if you don't like me, you have to vote for me anyway. You know why? Supreme Court judges. So it worked then. It may well work again. And it's worth bearing in mind that Donald Trump, if he's reelected, doesn't just get to um, appoint members of the Supreme Court. He also gets to appoint members of lower courts, federal courts. And so far in his first term, I think this has flown under the radar a little because there's been so much focus on other things, but he has appointed and had confirmed about a quarter of the overall federal bench, which will shape American jurisprudence for a long time after he leaves office, whenever that may be. All right, thank you both. Before you go, it's quiz time. You'll be delighted to hear. Jeopardy for Sadists is back. We spoke about Earl Warren and the famous Warren Court a little bit earlier. The Economist tipped Warren, who was then governor of California, as a dark horse for the presidency and a piece summing up the results of the 1946 midterms. What was unusual about Warren's re-election as governor that year? Was he overseas serving in the army? I like that. I like that. Charlotte? Do you want to have a a wild guess? 
so sorry. I just did the equivalent of someone spacing out in the middle of class. You probably have no idea even what the question is. And um, the question no, is, I really, what was, I was unusual? Not remotely. What was unusual about Warren's re-election <laughs> as governor that year? He ran unopposed, which okay. you know, for in a gubernatorial election for a state the size of California is quite a thing. Um, but those were gentler times. The Economist noted Warren not only won his own party's renomination for governor. Thanks to California law, he entered the Democratic primary and won that too. It's the only time that's ever happened in a gubernatorial race in US history. Warren was one of the most powerful Americans of the 20th century not to be president, but he was once on the ticket. Which one? He was once on the ticket. That's a good question. So losing ticket. A losing presidential ticket? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did he run with Adlai Stevenson? That would be about the same year, although he might have been a little young. Dewey? Dewey lost around that time. Charlotte Howard, that's full marks for you. You've redeemed yourself having ignored the first question. It was Dewey in 1948. Excellent. All that presidential history study is paying off. John, as a longtime dentist phobe, the Britain section ran an article this week that struck terror into my heart about uh, do-it-yourself dentistry. How is the lockdown treating you and how are your teeth? Well, as you know, one of the reasons this is a podcast rather than a video cast or whatever the appropriate terminology would be is that all British people have teeth like Austin Powers. And there's no way the podcast could survive seeing my teeth um, live. My, my teeth happily are OK, but I do have various friends um, who've had dental problems during lockdown. And all dentists are closed, even for real emergencies. There's been a lot of discomfort and homemade anesthesia with, with shots of vodka, but, but happily not in my household. My father-in-law, while stationed in Kazakhstan, pulled two of his own teeth with a pair of pliers and a bottle of vodka. Did he really? Is that the kind of thing father-in-laws tell you to make you fear them? (laughs) I think he actually did it. (laughs) All right. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you. See you next week. That's all from us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and a rating on your podcast app. While you're there, have a listen to The Economist Asks podcast. This week, Anne McElvoy is talking to Texas congressman and notable podcaster Dan Crenshaw about how conservatism can survive the COVID crisis. The left would rewrite the Declaration of Independence to say, make you happy. We would keep it the same and say, pursue your happiness. There's an element of personal freedom there that is extremely important to conservative thinkers. And the left just views that very differently. They're very much more comfortable with much more government control, telling you what to do, telling you how to be safe. As a conservative would say, if you don't want to go to a restaurant, don't go to a restaurant. Thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.